to breakfast What's before lunch? It's Austin, Texas It's weird brunch So you, you full-on grabbed that pot handle in order to, you know, dent yourself. Um, nope, just tried to, like, move it closer to the, like, it wasn't centered, and I'm OCD, and so it needed to be centered on the flame. And so I'm trying to, like, push it towards the center of the flame, and I didn't think I touched it that hard, but... But you did. I just don't know my own strength. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Or the opposite of strength of your skin on your hand. True. Skin strength. I have very weak skin. It's not like the ball of your foot that's all, you know, calloused and mangled and gross. Or that could just be my feet. I don't know. How do you measure skin strength? Is that like a... You burn it. There's got to be a difference. You burn it. You got to burn it real hard and see how bad it. I got a I got a pot you can take off the fucking stove and see. Ooh. Ooh. I I already have two cast iron pots that have both told me what to not to do yeah. in their own ways. I feel like it's always the cast iron that gets you. I put it in the sink once to cool off and my kids reached in to grab it, so I've even burnt a kid on it. Their skin oh. strength's not good. Yeah, but they gotta learn. You mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Don't touch hot shit. <laughs> or shit that seems like it's not hot. Just don't yeah. touch anything. Yeah. Yeah. Don't touch it. Did I tell you all about my therapist? No, we have to talk about it. <laughs> I'm so excited. Karina, did I tell you any of this? I don't think so. No. Okay. She tweeted about it. I did tweet about it. Maybe put on some notifications for every time I tweet mm-hmm. bullshit. Okay. Don't do that to any. No one should do that. Um, so, okay, two weeks ago, I was like, I want to watch something kind of mindless, but, you know, entertain or like not entertaining, but like. I did see this. Yeah. Something that is, you know, I'm comfortable with it, you know, whatever. So I put on Holy Hell which is the documentary about the Buddha field cult in that was in Austin for a while. And I just have it on as like background, whatever. All of a sudden I hear this voice and I'm like, I fucking know that voice. <laughs> and I look up and it's my fucking therapist who Woo! I talk to every fucking week. And I was like, Oh, Oh no. And so there was no, multitasking that was going to happen at that point. I was just full on watching the documentary again. And <laughs> um, like there were a couple of things in there that I was like, Ooh, Ooh, I feel like I'm reading her diet. Like this is weird. Yeah. Okay. To clarify though, she was in the cult. Yes. She's not just like a therapist commenting on people's cult trauma. No. Okay. She's she both. was the youngish one. Wasn't she in kind of a little bit later, like after they moved to Austin? Mm, I don't think so. Because when I talked to her last week, um, I was like, hey, uh, so uh, I got to tell you, I watched a thing um, this weekend that you were in. And she was like, oh, my God, have we not talked about that? And I was like, no, no, we have not. And uh 
So yeah, she told me um, she was in it for 18 years. Holy shit. Mm-hmm. Jeez. She uh, joined her senior year of college. So she was, I guess she was like, what, 22 around then? Um, so she was in it till she was like 40-ish. Wow. Yeah. And so she's still friends with most of the people in the documentary. She cut ties with everybody who didn't leave the cult. She said that, you know, the documentary is a little bit, you know, obviously it's focused on like the, uh, the cult part. (laughs) Yeah. Well, like the problematic aspects versus the, like, you know, finding your own. So yeah, it was focused more on like the, you know, the really negative stuff and not on like the, the positives that come out of a situation like that, because they were very like into meditating and into yoga and into self care. And so you know, she was like, there's a lot that I took away from that that was positive. She And she said that she also was not nearly as close to the uh, the the teacher, um, which she did call him that at some point. And I was like, Ugh. but she said she wasn't as close to him and that she was kind of a rebel, I guess, for that cult where she, you know, didn't live on the property she spent a lot of time on the property but she had a boyfriend which was also not chill typically and then she also uh owned her own business so it was like you know she kind of had a life outside of it she also like apologized to me for not telling me already and i was like i was like how would you know to tell me that like right so yeah, she was like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm an open book. I'll talk about it." It was just, ugh, it was weird. So I'm, I'm gonna keep seeing her because she was very normal about it. But 18 years is a very long time. You gotta be. Well, the thing, Trish and I just watched that documentary because she hadn't seen it, and I was so excited because I hadn't seen it since it came out in theaters. Whenever that was, like five, six years ago now. And so while we were watching it, the thing that was like left out of the documentary that I think the documentary maker is, it's called Holy Hell. If you're listening and you haven't seen it, you got to see this documentary, is like why people were in it. They did a good job of explaining at the very beginning when they were still in California, why people joined. But like, it was clear to me that there's a reason all these cult members are still friends and seemed pretty happy whenever they were shown together. And it didn't seem creepy happy. Like there had to have been something kind of like good going on. And then like the teacher just became a cancer inside of what was otherwise, I don't know. Like I wouldn't say it's a function group. I was in it, but like there was something good happening there because usually when a cult breaks up, everybody's like, fuck that. I never want to talk to any of those people or think about any of that again. Yeah. I feel like most cults start out really well-intentioned and then the leader or somebody is like hey this is a perfect way to grab power and make all these people do whatever i want i will say if you're curious about the buddha field cult that's episode 22 from season one of weird brunch that's right it's called joiners so if you feel like going back and listening to my not that great retelling of it because I hadn't <laughs> watched the I just found that cult while doing some research and I did not watch the documentary then. So 
Yeah. yeah. That was a good episode. Yeah. I think when it started, it was a lot of like, you know, get in touch with yourself and get in touch with uh, your mind and your body and, you know, yoga and, and meditation and discovery. And there's it's, a lot of the video where people are just like hanging out and dancing and having a good time. Yeah, it's funny. Cause like, I think about Austin and like back in the nineties and like late eighties and the bands that were around then, like specifically Poi Dog Pondrian is in my brain and like all the like hip pseudo, like people who are like, yeah, we're hippies, but it's the nineties. And like, none of it really made sense. (laughs) And that is like exactly what that fucking whole documentary is. And uh, wild. Oh yeah. Oh boy. I mean, she also was like, she was like, I came from a really fucked up family. And, and I'm like, well, <laughs> yeah. And then she, when she said it was her senior year of college, I was like, yeah, that's when you do those things. Like just very oh, yeah. matter of fact. I was like, yeah, that, of course. I that's trust you, you even more now. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you didn't go abroad. You joined a cult. It was fine. Yeah. It's fun. You joined it for 18 years, but it's fine. <laughs> hey, some people work for Office Depot for 18 years. Everybody makes mistakes. That's true. Oh. I don't uh, know why I pulled that out. Uh, we're sponsored by Office Depot. <laughs> that really, just that visual really bums me out. When I was uh, in high school, I worked as a cashier part-time for my gas money at Office Max the office depot competitor mm-hmm. and our manager was this big walrus mustached guy in his fifties. who was like always bragging about like, I started at this company when the company started, I've been here for mm-hmm. 18 years. And we were all like, don't brag about that. That's You're just a store manager after 18 years. You're like, Oh fuck. Well, you probably don't have any retirement saved and you're definitely <laughs> going to get some type of, Bad disease soon uh, at your age. Ooh. You're making like $3 more an hour than us. So, fuck. Yeah. Mm. Anyway. Welcome to Weird Brunch, though. Hey. Yeah. Hey. Ta da. This is our podcast. Say your names. No. Fine. <laughs> that was Karina Magyar being a bitch. Lisa Friedrich burned her hand, and I'm Whitney Lamond. I'm drinking a cocktail. There's no reason to go for me right then. <laughs> you did burn your hand. Karina's the one who should be mad because I called her bitch. I'm not, though. I like it. You're welcome. Now you've got our personalities in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all hand burned. Yeah. Lisa, <laughs> Lisa's always got a burned hand just constantly for no reason. It's just who I am. I mean, mm-hmm. fuck it, man. What movie is it where he wants to have a black eye the whole movie and they keep punching him in the face? Uh, I, don't I don't know. It sounds like one of those movies I watched in college, like a kind of slapstick comedy shit. And oh, like a $5 bin at no, the Walmart. You know what? Yeah. yeah. What it is is it's beer. Justin Long. It was beer. Oh, beer fest. Yeah. So I was just going to ask if Justin Long was in it and I was yeah. almost right. Yeah. So okay. close. So close, beer fest. So you guys know about Albania, right? For sure. I know it I exists. Know, I know where it is. You know where? Know. Did you point it out on a map? I know the capital. There's no way she could. 
I know when it was founded These and what it used to be. Lies. Yeah, it's all lies. <laughs> well, Albania, famous for being a location the Simpsons traveled to as a joke to make fun of all the times they went to another country, <laughs> uh, is a real place with a red flag and two falcons tied together at the neck on it. Um, on what? Oh, on the flag? On a red flag, and it's got like one of those symbols of like two eagles like tied mm-hmm. together. Yeah. It's it's a really awesome flag, is what I'm saying. And it's about the only thing they have going for them. <laughs> I'm sure there's more to Albania than just a flag, but I think you'll tell us. Like the albinos. And that's the end of the story. <laughs> <laughs> so Albania is, it's just south of the former Yugoslavia uh, on the northern Greek border. And right across the narrowest part of the uh, Adriatic Sea from Italy. So it's basically a neighbor of Italy and Greece. And yet, no, nobody goes there. Does it like butt up to like Macedonia? Uh, It does. I did recently look up Macedonia because I'm working with a developer who lives in Macedonia. And I was like, what time is it there the other day? Is that how you say that? I thought it was it is, Macedonia, so. right? It's Macedonia, but that's Macedonia. Okay, but, I was like, "What?" I've lived in Texas <laughs> my whole life. I don't know what oh you want from God. me. I am so happy with the pronunciation Macedonia that Macedonia. The fuck else would you call? It? Like, look at it, Macedonia. Where Mace is from? Yeah. If you saw it, if you just saw that, what you would go? Oh, that's Macedonia. Mm-hmm. I mean, probably. Yeah. So it's surrounded by <laughs> it's surrounded by Greece, Macedonia, Kosovo, and Montenegro. So it's like right there in the middle of that Yugoslavian mess, but it was never part of Yugoslavia. It's been independent since 1912 when it broke free from the Ottoman Empire. Um, and it stayed out of the Yugoslavia thing, but it did not stay out of the communism thing. So it was part of the Iron Curtain communist bloc after World War II. And they did communism all the way. Like the whole, their communist dictator was like, there is no private property. There is no private land. And it wasn't even like, oh, except for like the people who are well connected to the government. Mm -mm. It was like everything was public and owned by the government. So everyone was poor as fuck. Yes. So everyone was super duper 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 poor as fuck. As you probably remember, 1989, that whole thing started to really fall apart. And all those former communist countries outside the USSR went more or less democratic. Uh, Albania did not. It stayed communist and only uh, crumbled in terms of communism in 1992 when the USSR fell apart. And it no longer had its kind of like protector. Hmm. So in 1992, they had their first elections and the people elected a heart surgeon who smoked a lot. So trust right now we're, we're talking smart people. Um, But the main thing was that he was a very pro democracy and B from the North of the country, which was where the capital is and where most of the people live. 
And that was important because the communist dictator who had been running the place forever was from the south of the country. And he just let the north of the country rot. So they were like, all right, our turn. Got it. So they get their president. He seems to be, by all accounts, pretty good dude. He tried his hardest to help democracy uh, and capitalism come to this country where people had literally not owned private property in four generations. It didn't go well. So their constitution, and this comes into play later, did have a bill of rights. And those bill of rights included the right to bear arms, but not the right to uh, assembly or speech. (laughs) So they got the second amendment, but not the first one. I feel like you need the other ones at least for a little bit of it, but I don't know. I could be wrong. In the 90s? In the 90s. um, Yes. Yesterday. That was... (laughs) 30 years ago. It's 20 years ago. 25 years ago. Yeah. 30. 30 years ago. Yeah. Jesus Christ. It's wild to think about. <laughs> I don't want to think about. Oh, man. So the nice thing was Albania doesn't have squat, by the way. It's on the ocean. They don't have any good farmland. They don't make anything. They got no money. At the time that everything was getting converted, a living wage was about $60 a month. It was the poorest country in Europe and one of the poorest countries in the world. What did they have? Turns out they had cheap labor. I thought you were going to say cheese. I don't know why. Nope. <laughs> I really wanted you. I mean, you could make cheese with cheap labor. So you never know. Which is why all of the Albanians went to Greece and Italy to uh, work as cheese laborers and send money back. So they basically just became an export of cheap immigrated, immigrating labor. And then all those people would send money back and they would make pennies uh, in Italy and Greece. But because the currency was so much stronger, when they sent back half their pennies, their family lived like, oh my God, we can buy blue jeans and satellite televisions and apartments and all of a sudden things were going pretty well like albania's like hey this capitalism thing isn't half bad when you're the poorest country surrounded by relatively wealthy countries you get a lot of free money just kind of flowing in and the president did some smart things with the world bank and kept that money coming in and things were gradually improving standards of life were shooting up let me look up some of these stats because they are a hoot i love statistics that i love hoots we still loves hoots. Uh, so before 1992, there were fewer than one dozen elevators in the capital city. Uh, the entire nation did not have a stoplight. There were only 5,500 cars in the country. Ooh. Uh, they didn't have banks. What's the population? Population is... Three million. (laughs) No traffic. I mean, that's nice. No traffic. Lots of foot traffic, I guess. Uh, There were more like horse carts than cars, obviously. So people usually got around by horse cart. When this was still in the nineties. This was in nineteen ninety-two. Okay. Uh, When they gained their independence, the only thing that kept the country from starving to death was food aid from Italy. Uh, like they just had none money and the they got cut off from their collective farm distribution center when the communists fell and they just, it was like Roanoke. 
Like they were like, we're in the middle of nowhere and we've got nothing. So they very quickly had to learn how to bank and work and all that stuff. The World Bank invests. A lot of people go abroad and make some money and set it home. They also <clears throat> laundered a lot of illicit uh, weaponry into Yugoslavia, which really needed it at the time since they were having their whole civil war. So they found a lot of ways to make money. If, if you haven't been capitalist for four generations and you have suddenly in the span of four years started to build high rise buildings and everybody gets a car that they don't know how to drive and everybody's grabbing a bank and money's just everywhere all of a sudden, you kind of don't know what's up, right? Mm-hmm. New money. So a couple of enterprising and relatively more well-educated Albanians realized what they could do was start a bank that was actually a pyramid scheme. Oh, shit. And four of them did. And what happened was they would say, hey, give us $100 and we'll give you 20% interest. And people were like, sweet, that's pretty good. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, But now they have to compete. So they're like 40% interest, 60% interest. 100% interest a month. What? So all of a sudden, within one year, in 1995, people who had deposited money into these so-called banks or foundations uh, were getting 100% interest return a month. Mm -hmm. So everyone in Albania was like, fuck it. Sell my house, sell my car, Mm -hmm. sell all my couches and worldly goods and take my cash and put it into these schemes. And because everybody in Albania, I'm talking over 2 million of the 3.5 million people in Albania invested in these pyramid schemes, they worked because that's how pyramid schemes go. First people promise lots of money. And as long as they keep new people pumping money in, they can keep their promises to the first people. But the problem with pyramid schemes is, of course, you always run out of people eventually, which happened in 1996. By this time, there were over 28 pyramid schemes actively running in Albania. One of them owned a soccer team in a very small village on the ocean, a soccer team that had recently purchased the contract of Diego Maradona, who was the world's best soccer player at the time from Argentina. So they were going to bring the world's best soccer player to this tiny little village in Albania because they were just flush with cash. They were building like a huge new stadium. Uh, People were just blowing money left and right uh, who were in like charge of these pyramid schemes, buying yachts and all this shit. It's impossible to overstate how quickly this happened. We're talking in the span of 12 months. The people who started the pyramid scheme went from, oh my God, $100 a month is a lot of money to billionaires. Like just bam, they had all the money. They could fly around the world. They could buy anything they wanted. Take your money and run, bitch. Run. Get out of Albania. So the World Bank uh, noticed this and was like, hey, yo, you, you should stop this government. You you don't let this happen because it doesn't really work. See? And the government did crack down on some of the more obvious ones, but it left the four original banks to do their thing. And those four original banks did slash their interest rates down to like 60%, you know, something more reasonable. Something casual, like 60% interest. Woo, that's insane. And because most of the people in the government had invested in those four original banks, they were like, okay, that's good enough. 
and they let it be. Well, you can guess what happened next. 1997, all of the pyramid schemes started to collapse. Nobody could get their money back. Everybody was now suddenly out of cash and houses and jobs and cars and food. The economy just fell flat on its face like it tripped on a rock. Mm. Um, the owners of the pyramid schemes were prosecuted and thrown in jail if you could catch them, but it didn't matter. Like at that time, at that point, the money was gone. So the only thing that the Albanians hadn't sold was their constitutionally uh, allowed guns. Guns are worth money. Younger Albanians who had grown up in a somewhat post communist country. So we're talking like if you were 12 when everything switched over in 1992, now you're 17, 18, and the economy is falling apart, and you had a ton of money and now you don't, and you were working overseas to like make that money and you were investing it and now it was all gone, Mm -hmm. they were pissed and they had Kalashnikovs. So Albania had itself an instant civil war. Everybody blamed the government for not stopping the pyramid schemes from happening. Uh, Guns were fired in the streets. Guns were fired at consulates. Guns were fired at government buildings. It wasn't a civil war like North versus South or army versus rebels or anything like that. It was literally just regular ass people firing bullets at the government every chance they could get in a completely uncoordinated and completely non-guerrilla fashion. Just imagine if like, instead of protests, people were just going out there saying, you know what, fuck it. And just shooting everything they could see, right. you know, walking up and just letting loose. Mm-hmm. Most people didn't notice this because it happened about the same time as the worst of the ethnic cleansing in Bosnia and Yugoslavia. So like from a foreign news perspective in America, we were all paying attention to the fact that Should we send troops into Yugoslavia or not? What's happening with the Bosnians and all that? The complete chaos in Albania just was hard to wrap everybody's head around. So it went without much notice. But the UN did send in some peacekeeping troops from Italy just to stop the shooting and hold some sort of an election, uh, which they eventually did. And they elected communists back. But... They didn't go back to communism. They went with a more moderate democratic socialism. And today, Albania is a very pleasant place to visit. And they have been steadily climbing a little bit on the kind of quality of life scale. Still a very poor ass country. Still very like, I hate to use the term, but like backward compared to the rest of Europe. Mm. Um, It was a big deal when they wanted to join the EU because the EU was like, you barely have a country. (laughs) And like, if we gave you our currency, we all remember what happened last time. (laughs) Also, gross. gross. Uh, Also leading to the sort of snobbishness about Albania uh, in the rest of Europe is the fact that it's 70% Muslim. So that should also be noted. Um, But anyway, they're just chilling out there right next to Greece, not having anybody pay attention to them. And they had what I think is the weirdest civil war ever because it wasn't even a war. It was just people being really fucking pissed off that they had all their money stolen by a bunch of billionaires. Oh, that sounds like the entire world right now. (laughs) 
Yes, it's a cautionary tale oh if you didn't pick God, up on that. I got it. It took me to the end, <laughs> but I learned your cautionary tale, Karina. Is it cautionary or is it like, hey, things are chill now? I don't think any of us want to go back to, well, I guess they didn't really go back to communism, but we never really. No, they just. It, so. They didn't really go back to communism. They just reelected a bunch of people who were in charge during communist times, mm-hmm. but they kept some sort of constitutional democracy. I think they made some pretty significant reforms, but um, it's still nominally a democracy at this point. Hmm. Should we go visit Albania? Is their tourism great? I mean, we obviously can't go right now, but. Well, if you look it up on Google Images, you know how like those Mediterranean villages on a hill with crystal blue yes. ocean that you think of with Greece and Croatia and Italy? Yes, that's what they I have that. They have that. So does Macedonia. <laughs> well, Macedonia is not on the Mediterranean, though. It's, they have all Dali, that stuff. So the problem is uh, they speak Albanian, which is a weird language. Uh, there's a town called Borat. That's fun. It's beautiful. It mm-hmm. does. It looks like Greece, except stonier. All right. Well, mm-hmm. let's go to Albania whenever the world opens back up uh, 400 years from now. That's <laughs> what I keep thinking about is how we went through so many, like three rounds of plagues, the human race that all lasted hundreds of years. And, now we've got our new plague, and I highly doubt we're going to ever get out of it. Anyways, positivity. I mean, technology's come a long way with. It has. However. Um, Russia bought it all? Mm, I don't know. I, I don't know. Cool. Well, I'm here to talk about deep holes. Which I know. Oh, we, this podcast just took a turn. I know. I know we've had favorite kind of hole podcast. We've had like an episode or two about holes before, or you know something about that. But anyways, I got into this hole at first because I saw a story about something called the door to hell or the gate to hell. Mm -hmm. And I remember Lisa doing a story about a hell mouth in Kansas. I want to say. Yes. So this is not as much of a, mm, I don't want to say metaphorical hell mouth. Like this isn't a demon infested hell mouth technically that I'm about to talk about. It's not? Not mine. Yours could okay. be. But no, mine is you're, like 100%. Uh, oh, okay. 100% proven. Got it. Got it. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. that's what I was going to say. Uh, anyways. <laughs> so this is a wild hole. Let's go down and deep into it. It's called the Darvalza Gas Crater. It's also known as the Door to Hell or the Gates of Hell. And uh, it's located in Derwiz, Derwiza, Turkmenis, Turkmenistan. I got Macedonia. It. Macedonia. Macedonia. Uh, Macedonia. God damn it. 
So I'm going to be talking about two holes mainly, both of which Hell yeah. were penetrated <laughs> by Soviet drillers. So keep that in mind. Oh, my God. Can you speak slower? And I'm going to take this? off my pants and we're going to talk about this. So, I'm already one-handed. Let's I go. know you are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. Tell me where Boris was drilling with I me. will. Absolutely. So, okay. okay I'm sorry. Like <laughs> did you get turned on? I did. I did. Um, all right. So it's 1971 and these Turkmen geologists are like, we have something going on in Darvaza. And the Soviets are like, Really? We're very interested in this. Guess what? We love all types of uh, any income. And it sounds like what you're telling us is that this could be a really huge oil field under the ground. Can we come in and dig up your shit and see if that's what's going on? And they're like, hell yeah, we need money too. Doesn't everybody? Let's do this. So engineers go over to Darvaza and they set up a drilling rig and they're drilling down to see if there is an oil field. Turns out though, they drill so far that they end up hitting not an oil field, but a natural gas pocket. And they're like, Oh, uh, this, I mean, natural gas, that's great, but um, that's not what we were expecting. And the people in Darvaza are like, I'm sorry, but whatever. Uh, the ground beneath the drilling rig starts to collapse, and there's it, this giant crater is opening up because they've hit this pocket of natural gas. Every fucking thing falls in and they're like, oh, shit, this is bad, 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 bad. Um, it's starting to release a bunch of poisonous gases from this cavern that has been created from the drilling. It's floating into nearby towns and the engineers that are there are like, fuck, 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 fuck. Like, we can't have all these people die of poisonous natural gases. You know what would be a great idea? Let's throw a fucking bomb in here. Yeah. <laughs> Burn out all the natural gases. You know, we'll just nip it in the bud. I don't know why I wanted that so bad, but God, I did. Did you feel it coming? This is a lot of sexual things going on. Okay. They're like, yeah, it'll only take like maybe hopefully a couple of days, maybe even less for this natural gas to burn off from the bomb that we're going to throw in it. And despite their anticipation, the bomb, in fact, just ignites this cavern in the hole and cut to today. It's been burning for 49 years straight and expected to keep burning for like indefinitely. In April 2010, the president of Turkmenistan, I'm not even going to try to say his name. It is wild. No, I'm going to try and say it. Hold on. Gurbanguly Berdimuhamidow. Got it. That was totally okay. correct. Nailed it. Um, visited the hole and was like, we need to close the hole. 
And that's like, uh, not really possible. In 2013, he declared it part of the Karakum Desert. And the crater is part of a, nat- a nature reserve. <laughs> he appeared on on state television in 2019 doing donuts around the crater to prove <laughs> that you would die if you went near it. That fucking rules. <laughs> it sounds like idiocracy. It's like Kenny Powers. Oh, yeah. it just I love the idea of like he gave it to nature and nature was like, uh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. Uh yeah, so this fun hole that I just described <laughs> led me okay. to a series of holes. But my favorite other okay. hole currently, like my number this might yeah, no, this will be my number two hole. <laughs> <laughs> is called um the well to hell and that's what i call my number two hole i mean right uh so the well to hell it started as an urban legend and as the legend goes Russian engineers were led by an individual named Mr. Azakov in an unnamed place in Siberia and drilled a hole that was 4.4 kilometers, aka 8.9 miles deep before they broke 8.9 miles. This is the legend. 8.9 miles deep before they break through into this cavity that is hell. Mm-hmm. Intrigued by the discovery, they lower a heat-tolerant microphone along with other sensory equipment into the well. And the temperature inside the well, supposedly, was 1,832 degrees Fahrenheit, which, uh, I mean, I so can't So the thermometer melted? Yeah, I don't even know if thermometers can go that high. Uh, anyways, and this, this microphone that they also dropped down in there that I guess supposedly survived somehow, it recorded the sounds of the tormented screams of the damned deep Mm -hmm. in the hole. But what really happened was, no, wait, this is, there's, there's two things going on right now. So what had really happened was the Soviets had, in fact, drilled a hole called the Kola Super Deep Borehole. And Mm -hmm. I know I can't look at borehole and just not see butthole. It's very difficult for me. But (laughs) the Kola Super Deep Borehole is, in fact, a hole that is seven and a half miles deep. And... To put that into perspective, the Mariana Trench is the deepest part of the ocean, and it is deeper than that. But yeah, so this is the world's deepest hole. It was a scientific drilling project of the Soviet Union in the Pachenjensky district on the Kola Peninsula. They were trying to drill as deep as possible into the Earth's crust, trying to reach the mantle, I believe, which is wild. The target depth was 15, 
thousand meters, which is 49,000 feet. I don't know how many miles that is. Come on. Why didn't y'all convert that for me? Uh, anyways, um, almost 10. It's like eight or nine, eight or nine. Uh, so the drill passed 1200 meters in 1983 and stopped for a year because a lot of scientists and celebrities wanted to come see this big old hole. <laughs> in 1984, they got to 12,066. And then the drill st- string twisted off and got left in the hole. Oh, so I hate it when that I know, happened. right? Mm-hmm. It just the hole doesn't go as much like you don't you don't ever know so you definitely have to go to the hospital is the tampon still in there sorry i'm trying to find different things hole's gonna have toxic shock probably in 1995 due to the dissolution of the soviet union the site has since been abandoned the ruins of the site are frequently visited by curious sightseers and the superstructure that was over it was destroyed at some point between 2007 and 2012. And like, if you look at pictures of the abandoned site, there's just an old building with like a bunch of shit around it. And they have sealed up the hole with um, and welded it shut. So Thank God you can't go there and fall down the world's deepest hole. But if you did, it would take, I think I read that it would take like five minutes or something for you to fall down the borehole <laughs> because it's so fucking deep. It's too much time to think about. About mm-hmm. dying. Like, <sighs> how hot that is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you just keep screaming. That's what happens. Yeah. So that's the cola super deep borehole which like i said was part of this well to hell legend but the well to hell legend on top of being a legend evolved into this weird fucking thing in the american christian trinity broadcasting network oh that was mouthful on this network They claim that the whole, the legend of the whole was proof of the existence of hell because somebody had made this audio and public, or, you know, I talked about how they had recorded allegedly the sounds of the damned. So Mm -hmm. they start telling people that, yeah, obviously hell is real. We even have audio. uh, Is it considered footage of it? Y'all, everybody freak the fuck out. And this guy uh, named, I'm sure it's pronounced differently, but it's spelled age, A-G-E, Rindalen, is a Norwegian teacher. He hears the story on the Trinity Broadcasting Network while visiting the U.S. And he's like, this is such fucking bullshit. These people are idiots. You know what? I'm going to expand on this just to fuck with him. He writes to the network. He says he claims that he didn't believe the tale, but upon his return home, he read a factual account of the story in Norway. And according to him, the story claimed not only that the well 
to hell was cursed and real, but a bat-like apparition that resembled a demon or a bat boy had risen out of it before blazing a trail across the Russian sky. Mm. And Rendalen deliberately mistranslated this Norwegian article about a building inspector, inspector submits all of this and his own pretend English translation to TBN and includes his real name, phone number, a pastor friend who worked with him on this hoax because his pastor friend thought it was stupid also. They do all this, submit it to the TV station just to prove that they're being idiots. And that pastor must have been a youth pastor, you know, because they're like, oh, we're dangerous. Yeah, with it. And TBN turns around, publishes everything, and tries nothing to prove it in any way. And so everyone is just like, yep, this is real. And Rendalen and his friend are over in the corner going, no, we fucking made all this up to make a point. And now you're just fucking it all up. Mm-hmm. But so that didn't really work out. But if y'all want, I have a clip of the hell sound. <gasps> yes. So you want to hear the sounds from hell. I'm removing my headphones just a little because I'm scared. Anyways, it goes on like that for a while. Oh my! That's fucking awesome. God. It's pretty intense. Yeah. <laughs> so how'd they really make that? So apparently, it's actually just a bunch of looped screams from a movie. Uh, yeah. yeah. That yeah, somebody just looped over and over again so that it just sounded like a billion voices from hell. And yeah, those are my two favorite holes number one and number two so i hope you enjoyed them <laughs> there's also some place called mel's hole but we don't need to talk about that oh i think i've been there i have that noted as a future one but that i will not do um oh. why well it sounds like we don't need to talk about that one <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to just bring it right back to America. You know, I feel like we spent a lot of time mm-hmm. in, oh, man. in the communism world. I was really hoping yours was be. No, too. no, okay. this was all, all in the, in the free world, rocking in the free world, baby. <laughs> Lois Duncan. Do we know her? No. Okay. Uh-uh. Lois Duncan wrote like, 8 million YA books uh, through the 70s, 80s, uh, really? and some in the 90s. Yes. She, a lot of them are a little dark, uh, but you feel like just so fucking badass for reading them when you're like 
12, 13, 14, you're like, oh yeah, I'm dangerous. Look at me reading alone instead of hanging out with friends, you know? all the Anne M. Martin bullshit. I'm here for Lois. Yeah. Um, So if anyone didn't know that was Babysitter's Club, they should not be listening (laughs) to this podcast. Um, So just a short list. Uh, I know what you did last summer. Killing Mr. Griffin. Whoa. Don't look behind you. Summer of Fear. Locked in Time. Daughters of Eve. And... My personal favorite that has haunted me <gasps> forever, uh, Stranger with My Face. No! No! That one is about astral projection. And I have. Karina's having flashbacks, like, as you said. Yeah, I read that one. Did you really? Mm hmm. Like, for whatever, I maybe I was too young, but when I read it, I was like, well, that. That shit sounds tight. I'd like to go wander around in my sleep. Why the fuck not? I've been searching for this book because I, the last like few months, I guess I've been like, you know what? Let's, I remember astral projection. Let's look into that. So when I found this story, I was like, oh, fuck, that's that book, dude. Which is great when you're uh, a little bit manic to be like, everything's connected. Um, yes, it is. <laughs> So Lois Duncan is born in on April 28th, 1934 in Pennsylvania. She's the daughter of professional photographers. They did photography both for catalogs and more excitingly, the goddamn circus, uh, Ringling Brothers to be specific. So Lois grows up in this circus environment. Uh, sh- her best friends are a uh traveling band of little people i forget the name of them uh and so she's you know she's got a unique upbringing she starts writing and submitting manuscripts to magazines at the age of 10 she sold her first story at the age of 13 and then in 1952 what so this bitch is better than us she's better than all of us truly Truly. Um, so in 1954, she enrolls in Duke University and she drops out in 1953 because she had gotten her MRS degree at that point. Mm-hmm. And she starts a family with Joseph Cardoza, who she Cardozo, who she met at Duke. And she continues to write and publish magazine articles. She wrote over 300 articles published uh, in like Ladies Home Journal, Red Book, McCall's, which in the, like, that was the biggest thing. And yeah. Red Book, hello. Yeah. Good McCall, housekeeping. If you, got, if you got your fiction published in McCall's, that was like the New Yorker at the time. Yeah. Also Reader's Digest. Anyway. Everyone had that. Yeah. yeah I mean, shit. I got like five jokes in Reader's Digest. <laughs> Did you really? No. Oh. I was like. I wish. I wish I could write life in the military jokes that good. I would love nothing better if somebody was reading my jokes while taking a shit. Uh, <laughs> I'll do. So <laughs> she and Joseph had three children, uh, daughters Robin and Carrie and son Brett. She published her first novel, Love Song for Joyce, in 1958 under the pen name Lois Carey. 
And then in 1962, uh-oh, divorce. Um, oh. Imagine that. You got divorced from a guy you met when you were 19. Um, not that that always happens, but that was a judgy. I'm sorry. <laughs> so after the divorce, Duncan moves to Albuquerque, New Mexico with her children and supports herself by writing greeting cards and fictional confessionals for pulp magazines. So she's like, oh, so uh, fun. I know. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I robbed a bank on accident once when my tit fell out or yeah. whatever. <laughs> I accidentally popped a tit and they gave me money at the bank. I didn't mean to steal the money. I just have a really good left tit. <laughs> Instead <laughs> of a right hook, you've got a left tit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're a South Tit. Instead of a South South (laughs) Tit. It's the one that's just a little more. It's got more swaying to it. Yeah. It's a little more down. (laughs) Sorry. Her most popular story, the headline was I wanted to have an affair with a teenage boy. Man, the 60s were different. Because now that's just true stories. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) They do that. In 1965, she marries Donald Arquette. He's an electrical engineer. And they have two children, a son, Donald Jr., and a daughter named Caitlin. So I thought you were going to say Patricia, and I was going to get so excited. Why? Well, because like, and then David, and then Rosanna, and like, I was like, oh my God, are all the Arquettes related to her? I was going to get so excited. No, I wish. Her three oldest children all took her second husband's name, which I always think that that is, I think it's very cool when that happens, personally. Um, And that their dad sucked. I know. That's the sad part. But I think it's really cool when they're like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm an Arquette now. I'm a Rockette. So... In 1966, she publishes the novel Ransom, which details a group of students that are held captive on a school bus. And then she won an Edgar Allan Poe Award nomination. So she's like, you know what, man? That suspenseful shit is working for me. So that's kind of when she takes that turn. And in the early 1970s, uh, she is hired to teach journalism at the University of New Mexico. Her friend, the again, she dropped out of Duke. She has no degree. Do you think they call themselves Dukies? I'm just curious. Also, if you drop out of Duke, are you called a Dukie? Or a a drop in a Duke. (laughs) I'm just saying. Anyway, sorry. She's a Duke. She's a Duke dropper. Um So her friend is the chair of the journalism department, and she hired her as a replacement based on her experience writing for magazines. And then while teaching, Duncan enrolls in classes and earns a BA in English by 1977. So she's like, well, fuck it while I'm here. She starts writing various suspense and and horror novels aimed for teenagers. So like I said, I know what you did last summer. Later on, when she watched that movie, she was like... Um, okay. And, uh, really? Yeah. In the book, there's no lunatic killer with a hook for a hand. So, like, that's mm-hmm. kind of the main point of the movie. You know, she also wrote Down a Dark Hall and Summer of Fear. And then in 1978, she writes Killing Mr. Griffin. 
the kids kill their English teacher. Um, so that's very controversial, especially in 78. And it didn't really, you know, while people were like, this is fucked up, kids are going to start killing all of their teachers. Um, it's actually selected as an American Library Association best book for young adults that year. Keeping it controversial, man. The chaos of it all. Uh, in the 1980s, she's, you know, popping out more supernatural thrillers, including Stranger with My Vase uh, and The Third Eye and then Locked in Time. Uh, in 1988 and 89, she publishes The Twisted Window and Don't Look Behind You, respectively. And then in the summer of 1989, the youngest of the Duncan's children, Caitlin Arquette, was murdered in Albuquerque, New Mexico. <gasps> oh, fuck. What? Yeah. So from here on out, I do want to attribute uh, Tim Stello. He wrote an article around this and it's very detailed and it um it helped me learn what to say today so 1989 caitlin arquette's murdered in just a very bizarre shooting just blocks from downtown albuquerque now in the 80s and 90s albuquerque's violent crime rates were roughly equaled phoenix and houston like it it was a very dangerous place to be. So Caitlin, you know, growing up, she was really bookish, but she also did some like weird things. Um, she liked to pick up hitchhikers just to collect their stories. Uh, when she was 16, the family's mailbox started filling up with letters, all from potential suitors. Uh, Lois thinks that they were responses to singles ad. <laughs> But, like, you're 16. What are you doing? Uh, doing I, I love it. Yeah. I, I, if the internet I didn't exist, it. like, I can't imagine what weird shit I would have done as, like, <laughs> a driving teenager. Yeah. Like, I'm going to fucking pitch, pick up hitchhikers because I don't have Reddit. Uh, exactly. <laughs> or Craig's, like, yeah. Go wild. Can you imagine just picking up a hitchhiker and immediately looking at him and going, am I the asshole? Okay, now hear me out. <laughs> I got an idea. Yeah. Oh, today I learned. So years later, she would have a, uh, Lois would have a conversation with a prison inmate who claimed to be one of Kate's correspondents. So like she's, Caitlin is just real into like people and their stories and their lives. And then in the summer of 1989, she's between high school and, you know, everything after she moves into her first apartment and she, she kind of shares it with her boyfriend. She, she mostly shares it with her boyfriend and, you know, the transitional summer, she goes from rolling skating waitress, roller skating waitress to bookstore clerk to manager at an import shop. Sure. Dude, go. Yeah. So Sunday, July 16th, she's at a friend's house doing dinner and a movie. And then when Kate leaves for the night, she backs out of the driveway and drives one block south to Lomas Boulevard, which is kind of like a through lane in, uh, in Albuquerque. And there's a set of railroad tracks on Lomas, and this is where the murder occurs. Two bullets enter the driver's side window shattering the glass and puncturing Kate's left temple and cheek. 
the car, her car then drifted leftwards across like three lanes of traffic because no one's actually driving the car. She's rushed to the trauma unit at the University of New Mexico Hospital in a coma just immediately. Mm-hmm. So Lois Duncan Arquette is, she's very well known in Albuquerque. Everybody knows her. She she wrote Strange With My Face. <laughs> Who doesn't know her? <laughs> and so, and she also, because of her job, she had taught like a lot of the city's press people, right? And so the media is like, that's my teacher. And they're all like, what, like what's happening? And that was kind of like a newer thing in 89. Like, you know, court TV wasn't really a thing. Like this intense fascination with a murder wasn't like, you know, this is kind of the turn of that. So then later that day on July 17th, uh, Kate is pronounced, it's Caitlin, but she goes by Kate. Kate is pronounced brain dead. Her siblings and parents filed into the hospital room to say their goodbyes. And the murder was treated as a tragedy for the city. Police promised just all hands approach. They said, we don't care how much manpower it's going to take. We're going to resolve it. Bottom line. In the days after the killing, no murder weapon was found. And no suspects were identified. But there's this younger homicide detective, uh, Steve Gallegos, and he's investigating the murder. So he does turn up a couple of promising clues very quickly. One of them is from Kate's friend who told him that the night of the murder, Kate was furious with her boyfriend. And this wasn't unusual. Their arguments had become so routine that just before she died, Kate may have been planning on ending their relationship. So, like, you know, some we've all watched Lifetime. Some motive right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then they were like, you know what? It's not super likely that he did this. So let's talk about Kate's boyfriend. He was a handsome, slender Vietnamese man named Yoon Nguyen. It is... It's spelled dung, and if I say dung, please stop me, because it is Yoon. Anyway, he and Kate met at a coffee house a year and a half before, and he is nearly a decade older than Kate, but he doesn't look it. Lois and Don welcome him into their home. They spent holidays together. He called Lois mom. Uh, She, like, would take care of him like he you know take him to the dentist and and he had an abscess too so she's like taking care of him afterwards and i don't like i mean being i don't like that (laughs) i'm just gonna say i don't like that he's a grown-ass man um you're clearly in your 30s like chill the fuck out and don't call my mom mom anyway oh shit i gotta start calling holly holly um so the Hours after the shooting, Gallegos tracks Nguyen down for questioning and tested his hands for gunshot residue because he's like, it's just been hours. I'm going to I'm gonna wipe your little hands real quick. And he told the detective that on the night Kate was shot, he'd been at a bar with a couple of friends. And afterward, they gave him a ride to Kate's apartment. And he said, I waited and waited for her, but she never came home. Bullshit. Sorry. 
yeah, the gunshot residue, it came back negative, none of that. And then five days after the murder, Nguyen was staying with a couple of friends at an Air Force dorm room. And when the friends returned from a restaurant, they discovered him on a bunk bed in the corner moaning and there's blood on the sheets and a four inch folding knife on the bed. Nguyen had stabbed himself in the stomach. What? Yeah. He said he'd been so distraught over her murder that he tried to commit suicide. He blames himself. He says uh, that if he had not gotten into an argument with her, that she would not have been in that area of town or alone. Right. So the dinner in the movie was kind of like a, I got to get the fuck out of here. That said, Nguyen seems that he lived a double life. So there was, you know, the man that Lois took care of, the grown man that Lois took care of. And then there's the one that uh, Gallegos hears about from Kate's landlord who said Kate had been so afraid of Nguyen and his, and his friends that she had asked for the locks on the door to be changed. And then from Kate's friends, Lois hears that Nguyen had been involved in insurance fraud in Southern California. So the scam is well known now. Uh, a car accident is staged and victims pursue settlements afterwards. So. In 89, insurance companies and law enforcement agencies were often unprepared. This was actually something that happened a lot in Beaumont when I lived there. Class. Which is weird. Weird. Okay. Mm-hmm. In Orange County specifically is where this was happening. Even though all of this is taking place in Albuquerque, Orange County is kind of where all the um, the main scams were happening. And it, it did come out of the Vietnamese like community. So it was kind of orange County in what state? California, California. Okay. So it's, it's one of those things where it's like, is this kind of like, this is a gang thing, right? You know? So Robin, Kate's sister, she's always been skeptical of psychics, but a friend recommended visiting a local one. And when she shows up, the woman's like, fucking normal and the way she works with uh you know as a psychic the way she like reports stuff is that she just like kind of free like sits at a typewriter and just types up whatever's coming at her so robin's allowed to ask three questions she asks if Nguyen or his friends had anything to do with kate's murder and the typewriter says The situation in which Yoon now finds himself is born out of misunderstanding and confusion. It is not as if he will have been the one to do this, but he will know who did it. It's the most hipster way to be a fucking whatever person. (laughs) Oh, I type them out on the typewriter. (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) I mean, I know (laughs) back when typewriters were a thing, but whatever. Sips wine. Um, it's a vodka so, soda, Lisa. <laughs> I'll get fucked then. <laughs> uh, so Lois, she's not just skeptical of psychics. She thinks that they're con artists. Okay. But after Robin, yeah, after Robin tells her what happened, she's like, uh, well, I'm like, I'm, yeah, let, sure. Let's, let's look into that. 
So then Lois, Don, and Robin go to the hospital where um, where Yoon is kind of recovering from stabbing himself. And th- they walk in and, you know, he's all fucked up on pain meds, whatever. But he puts his arm around her and he's like, I want to talk to you and no one else uh, to Lois. And he says, I didn't kill her. And she said... I know you didn't. And then she was like, you know who did? And that he needed to decide whether he loved Kate enough to tell her. And he was silent for a moment. Then Lois said that he said, I know I'm deciding. What is there to decide? Okay. Fucking say it. Well, yeah. So the first thing Lois does, she calls that detective, right? She calls Gallegos. And after Nguyen recovers, Gallegos asks him to come back to the police station for an interview. And he also asks Lois to come. And she's like, what the fuck do you want me to do? And he's like, do what you did at the hospital. Like, whatever got him to do say that. Like, do that. Come on. Do it. Yeah. So they all get there. And uh, Lois brings uh, this little toy reindeer that he had gotten Kate for Christmas. And she's like, Kate always really loved this reindeer. And then she repeated what she said a few days ago. She's like, I know you know. And this time he didn't say anything. (laughs) And Lois is telling it's around like this point where the police investigation seems to shift or like lose interest a little bit. More details start to pop up and Gallegos is kind of like, okay. Uh, An example is a friend of Kate's said she received a startling phone call from Nguyen the night of the murder. And she's like, he's screaming into the phone. He's saying, Kate dead. The friend told Caristo, the private investigator, in a recorded interview. So they hire a private investigator as well. And so she's like, this fucked up phone call happens. And then she says that Kate was upset about the insurance fraud. The couple had traveled to Orange County together when he participated in a staged event, a staged accident. The friend thought there might be some connection. So she dialed the police, shuffled to Gallegos, and she says that he just blew her off. Later, she discovered the most like intense part of this, where the police didn't notify Nguyen of Kate's murder until 3 a.m., which was several hours after she had the panicked conversation with him. And then there's some some phone calls. So three calls have been placed from Kate's apartment. Each one was to Orange County, and they were placed on July 17th at the precise time that Kate was in the trauma unit dying. Nguyen had been at the hospital at that time, so he couldn't have made the calls. Lois is like, here's a bill, motherfucker. And she's like, what are you, she's calling her. She's like, what are you able to find out? I gave you the bill. I gave you the bill. And he's like, no, they're unlisted numbers. The the police can't get unlisted numbers. Fucking. For real? Like, why not? That's not. Right? I don't know. I don't know. Where is this again? 89. I know a lot about unlisted numbers. and No, I'm just kidding. No fucking idea. <laughs> they also they had also collected a note from her apartment 
And it was uh, presumed to be like a really important piece of evidence. It was basically her saying like, I miss you. I, you know, I'm, you know, I'm going to go run to my mom's house. I'll be back. It took a while. It took weeks before the Arquettes finally saw uh, Lois Duncan and her family finally saw the original copy of the note. And they were like, what the fuck? Because it was, the handwriting was very different than Caitlin's. And she brought examples of her handwriting to the police department. And then on top of that, there were misspellings and and errors that, that Caitlin wouldn't have made. So when the, the text of the note appeared in Gallegos's report, it had been cleaned up. So originally it said, it looked like it said, I went to Nam house to retune these books. And then it becomes, I went to mom's house to return these books. Whoa. Nguyen finally makes some admissions around the insurance fraud. So his initial counters with the police, he's like, I don't know nothing about that. But Later on, he admits to participating in two different staged accidents, both of which were planned and paid for by a paralegal in Orange County. Uh, He lied because a friend and fellow fraudster told him to, right? Like, you're kind of dealing with some illegal shit. You don't know how far that's going to go. So you tell me not to, and probably not. Uh, The friend, it turned out, is the one that made the three phone calls from Caitlin's apartment. Why? And well, each one was directly to that staged accident planning paralegal. So yeah. And they hadn't staged anything that day. So he's just like, Hey dude, this thing is probably, I mean, assumedly. So these admissions are made, uh, in an interview at Albuquerque's central police station for reasons that remain unclear. Authorities didn't seem particularly concerned. He, a deputy chief would later describe quote claims concerning Vietnamese gang activity and possibly quote, nothing more than smoke. Gallegos seemed sympathetic to Nguyen. Uh, At one point he thought why Lois believed quote, the Vietnamese were involved in Kate's murder. And Nguyen says she thinks we did something like that. And then to your knowledge, is there, uh, there's nothing that would say that anyone in California is responsible for Kate's death. And he said, no. And then are you sure? And he said, yes. The interview, when the interview was over, uh, Nguyen leaves the police station and eventually Albuquerque. And Lois is like, again, what the fuck? Um, You know, she's like, are they incompetent? You know, what is happening? Do they know something? And so she's, she says we were having serious doubts about the communication that was going on there and what they were really doing. And so she goes looking for answers elsewhere. And that is where I'm gonna leave there it. There you go. Ooh, tune in next time for the thrilling conclusion of what the fuck Lo- says Lois. Just a little teaser. Okay. Like three more names get brought into this. Woo! Oh my god. It gets nuts. That's wild. Oh shit. That 
that's the most um, complicated. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait to hear the rest of this because three more names mm-hmm. get pulled in. I'm like, like it's, it's how many people can randomly get involved in this it's, one? Death? It's so nuts, y'all. But it's like I'm just like. <laughs> What were they trying to like fake some type of accident, like blow out one of her tires or something, and they accidentally shot her in the fucking head? Like, were they upgrading to life insurance fraud? Like, ooh, I'm not googling. Well, don't anything. Google it or Marcus. Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> or anybody else who listens, don't Google it because we'll tell you next week. I will. Lisa will tell you. Whitney and I will spew mm-hmm. some other bullshit, but Lisa will tell you what's going on with that. Well, yeah. Well, thanks. We'll see. Yeah, thanks for listening. And I feel like Lisa, you should say tune in next week because you're the oh yeah final tune in next week when I'm going to give you four more names, make this ten times more confusing, and uh, finish the story up. <laughs> Don't fall in any holes, anybody. Freeze frame. <laughs>